Hello, welcome to Pod Songs. I'm Jack Stafford, and I interview inspiring people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today I'm speaking with a Spanish physician, international civil servant and diplomat who served as the Director of Public Health at the World Health Organization since 2005, and her mission is cleaner air. Please welcome Dr. Maria Nair. Hello. Hello, Maria. Hi. Hi, Jack. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. Pleasure. You are something different in my working day today. <laughs> yes. Not many times people contact you to write a song about you. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's so nice to be in touch with an artist, at least. You know, that changed a little bit my life. <laughs> no, well, you're doing great work. Um, you're mostly focused on clean air from what I, from what I was... Um, was reading about and just coincidentally I was reading a magazine just before we came on and I turned the page and it was a story about Ella Kissy Deborah in London who died from um, she's the first death in the, from an inquest in London in England to death by air pollution do you, you know about this and case I know, I know very well the mom Rosmund and the twins the brothers of um, of the little Ella, and it's an amazing family. And Rosmund is an incredibly strong woman, and she she put a lot of effort on what she did, and she managed now to have an historical sentence that we will all uh, use now because it's it's amazing what she did and she's doing. Because mm. in your videos you talk about seven million deaths every year, and I mean that's that kind of number, and you kind of think maybe it's old people or people in maybe in developing worlds in China, for example, but this really brings it home when there's a, a death from a young person in London. She was only nine years old. Yeah, and I think one of the big connections with this uh, problem of air pollution is exactly that, is asthma. I think people understand that very well because you, you, you feel it, you know, and then everybody knows somebody with asthma and everybody knows how terrible is when you cannot breathe properly. I mean, when you, I, I don't know how many asthmatics you, you saw in your life, but uh, when I was a practitioner, for me, it's one of the most impressive things, you know, when, when you have somebody with a very acute uh, attack of asthma and they cannot breathe. Wow, that's really very, <laughs> really terrible. Yeah. So, so how did... Insect pollution, yes. So, so maybe let's talk about a bit of that, a bit about this case. Was it the was it the nitrogen oxides that, that caused the most damage? How does this? How is it killing? How is it so dangerous? Well, the problem is that uh, this little girl and her family they were living in a very polluted area of London. So again, you see the the um, so-called social determinants. You can live on an area where. If you are poor, probably the, 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 the levels of uh, pollution are even higher. So she was treated at hospital and uh, her asthma attacks were uh, stabilized, but then she was sent back home 
where she was exposed to NOx and she was exposed to PM 2.5. And uh, so the, 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 the problem, the cause of the problem was uh, exactly the same. And then nobody had the, 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 the initiative on saying this girl needs to change the place where they live or the conditions of the places where she lives needs to change. And uh, so this is an open, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good uh, advocacy what uh, we're doing now because people now is very much uh, aware of what uh, air pollution means for your health. Mm. So, the, yeah, the mother said she would have moved away if she'd known. I mean, it's not every child that's affected this bad, is it? She did have quite an acute case. I, I think that's the problem. Is uh, if, if you, as a doctor, you keep treating the disease, but not looking at the causes of the disease, this is really very frustrating because uh, we as a doctor, we cannot simply uh, do our, perform our work at the hospitals. We need to influence what's happened outside. And we need to make sure that we treat patients when they are sick. But more importantly, we need to make sure that they will not become sick. And we need to do more on preventing diabetes, preventing hypertension, preventing exposure to air pollution, preventing obesity. Uh, that will be uh, preventing tobacco, of course. That will be a fantastic way to, to keep people healthier and, 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 and promote more well-being. And in the case of air pollution, that will be so good as well to prevent uh, uh, pandemics like uh, the one we are facing now, you know, because more your uh, lungs are vulnerable, more uh, an infectious uh, respiratory agent like uh, SARS-CoV-2 will be able to, to have an impact on you. That's clear. Mm. I had a song about one of my other guests I wrote called Doctors Unite. I'm trying to get the, the remedies universal for many health problems that if doctors just come together and are, are activists as a group, they can solve all of these problems, no? Yeah, I, I would love to, to, to be part of a white coat revolution, you know, a positive white coat uh, revolution. I will be yeah. so <laughs> to be, uh, doctors, we we are uh, upset, we are fed up. Doctors are, uh, um, you know, we are losing patience now. We want you to clean our air. I want to clean air. Uh, I will do a rap, you know, and, and, and then try to... <laughs> a revolution say come on guys come on doctor join me uh, that's enough uh, patients uh, out of the clinics we want people healthy not uh, sick people so mm. even if we lose our jobs we want you healthy guys <laughs> yeah white coat revolution that's great so what um so do you think white that, coat um, uh, power yeah <laughs> So do you think that COVID is, has taken too much attention now away from, I heard you talking in another video about how dangerous, for example, even, a, even an obscure thing like lead poisoning is still affecting so many people. But now, do you think we're over-focusing on one health issue now with COVID? Yeah, if, if COVID can bring to us this, um, can reinforce this importance of uh, prevention, uh, that will be a, a big achievement. Um, if he, he kind of um, wake up us and say, okay, uh, unless you reduce your vulnerability, 
you will be um, you know exposed to 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 new crises it can be a virus it can be a climate change can be an environmental issue but you need to understand that we are very vulnerable and we need to do whatever we can to reduce that vulnerability and one way to reduce our vulnerability is to stop polluting everything we touch because we are the polluters army i mean we whatever we touch we pollute it we pollute the oceans and therefore the, the the food that we are obtained from the oceans we pollute the air we breathe we pollute the water we we eat we pollute the the, the soil where we do our agricultural products everything we touch we pollute it so unless we understand that by reducing pollution we are not saving the planet we are saving ourselves i mean and then the the pretentious people who says let's save the planet who do you think you are to save the planet the planet will you know will do this and we will all disappear so we need to to make sure that the planet will accept us as uh, predators that we are but at least the, we will be accepted and then we have a nice way of living together and then taking advantage of nature instead of destroying it. <laughs> it's so difficult to change though. I mean, for example, with COVID, the, the people who are very vulnerable, the people overweight um, with diabetes, I know some of them personally and they, they haven't changed their behavior even when they know that it's that puts them in a risk category. So changing the world, you know. Yeah, this is very, very interesting because um, when you see what the society has been able to do for for uh, to prevent COVID, no, we we are all with masks, universal use of masks. Who will imagine anything like that? Um, we are all staying at home. We are all, uh, you know, refraining from from seeing friends, from from having a big hug and all of that. But if you ask the society to stop smoking. That's too much, you know. And then they will accuse you of, um, you know, uh, attacking my personal freedom, and uh, there might have some uh, uh, economic repercussions. Wow! But for COVID, we have been able to do everything, and then, and including a horrible economic uh, disaster that, uh, you know, will be very much attacking us uh, soon. So it's funny that uh, we need to put on a package all of those huge risk factors that are going against ourselves, so, uh, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, tobacco consumption, and air pollution. We need to, and the diet, uh, what we are eating, which is related to obesity, that will be such a healthy society and, and, and well-being and still maintaining our freedom, of course, but uh, on the choice, but good choices, not bad ones. As of today, uh, 2.27 million people have died with COVID. And yeah, if it's 7 million from air, air quality every year, but there hasn't been a national emergency, I mean, how does that make you feel? You know, it's terrible to compete in terms of numbers of deaths. I mean, in, here in WHO, we are responsible for, for issuing this type of figures and saying how many people die from air pollution, how many people die from tobacco, how many people die. So it's not a competition. It's a, it's a horrible competition, by the way, in terms of millions of deaths. So every death is, is a painful one. Even one death will be too much if we can prevent it. So we need to accept the death, of course, but uh, we need to prevent when it can be prevented. 
So I feel very bad about uh, not uh, providing the enough attention to air pollution, particularly because that, that will be contributing as well to reduce the, 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 the um, probabilities and possibilities to, to, to uh, get COVID-19 as well. So we, we could reduce a lot of damage. And that will be a good investment because it will be on the prevention of COVID, on the prevention of the 7 million deaths, on a more sustainable and an economy, good economy. So there will be only wins uh, around that. Mm. Do you think there were some side benefits with COVID? I mean, I, know, I live by a road. It's quite, it's quite busy. And during the first lockdown, we was the first time we could go. We went actually went and sat in our garden because there were no cars coming by in our front garden and it was great and there were no airplanes going over ahead and you know and people in the cities were all wearing masks so do you think the the deaths this year from air pollution will be less we saw it we saw it in the first weeks and i think people appreciate enormously that the lack of uh, pollution the lack of noise the lack of traffic and the the fact that you could walk and and, and the, the, the city was a little bit more human. But um, unfortunately, uh, that those benefits uh, have disappeared already in terms of um, CO2 emissions. Uh, we are back uh, on, the, on the wrong track again. And um, maybe the, the, the more sustainable benefits will come from people who will prefer now to move to rural areas or outside the city mm. and then our cities might be less mm, dense and, and, and populated but we'll see i hope so i hope that the, the, the families with the small children might look for other options outside the very congested cities and then we will have a better rural uh, life and more friendly and with some a piece of garden somewhere yeah. A friend, a friend of mine in London said that um, now because everyone's been used to working from home, yeah, teleworking, and so many businesses are used to it, and they realise that the productivity stays the same. Is is the um, it was kind of insane if you look before that everybody rushed at the same time in their cars at, to work, and then at the same time rushed home, causing this huge. If we don't need, if we can change that somehow, that would be great. Yeah, I, I think we all realize that, that we don't need to all be in the office at nine o'clock and living at five. That sounds ridiculous now. And uh, being, uh, how many people accepted and without any question, um, spending two, three hours a day on, on, on queuing on a car and, and yeah, yeah. in the traffic. We, thought, we all thought that it was normal, you know, and we, we didn't mm. complain. To, to go to an office, where you have uh, one chair, one desk, and a computer. So, in fact, <laughs> unless you, you have another type of work, uh, you, you can do it in other places. So we need to manage to have something where we have social interaction because that's very much needed. Uh, mm, and yeah, I, I think it's so important. But it's still um, a more rational way of living and, and, and working. Mm. I'm receiving now emails from my at uh, three o'clock in the morning or uh, you know oh, no. i mean you you can you can work want i mean three o'clock in the morning is not a good thing but <laughs> i mean y y people change their way of life right? and they, they maybe they take care of the children during the day and they yeah. work later on so uh, you know 
there are some positive, but still, I, I think we miss. I miss terribly the the, the social uh, interaction. That's uh, Zoom the gloom. human touch, fundamental. I was reading the back. Uh, one of yeah, my other I guests is one of my other guests was a sleep doctor, and there's different types. So the wolves and the dolphins they stay up late at night. So they, maybe they benefit from this different work schedule, and they're actually more productive and. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but uh, provided you can you can see human beings in three Ds, you know, in three mm. dimension, and see that uh, not only the screen, that um, I hope that we will not go back to what we had before, but we will have a more funny way of uh, working and living. I'm pretty sure that it will be the case. Well, fingers crossed. But we have a history of going towards insanity. Um, I was I was watching with my uh, niece and nephew a film called uh, The Lorax by Dr. Zeus. Have you seen that one? No. It's uh, set in a, Say in the, a, name. the Lorax. Lorax. Yeah, and it's set in the future where you have to buy your air clean. You live. We live in a in a sealed city. And you have to buy your air as you do as people buy bottles of water now, which is also insane. Oh, yeah. But you know that in India, in New Delhi, there are bars already where they offer you oxygen masks yeah. for breathing a little bit of oxygen. And then this is kind of uh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> it was My a fashion goodness, thing, yeah, yeah, supposed to give you make you feel good. But I, I tried it once when I was traveling in Asia and it didn't didn't make me feel any different oh you try it and uh, yeah it's a fashion yeah. thing yeah crazy yeah crazy. yeah totally so do you cycle in the city so you... what are your plans my plans sorry sorry I interrupted. Oh, sorry with a bit of a delay there but um do you cycle in the city do you you live in geneva is that right yes no geneva is such a we are so privileged in geneva you know uh, uh, well, to be honest with you, I cycle, cycle but uh, seven months a year, <laughs> five months. Uh, I mean, the, the winter time, uh -uh, no, <laughs> but the, the, the summer time here is so easy. Everything is easy. Honestly, mm. we, we are very privileged in terms of nature and landscape and the, the lake. Everything is easy. So it's true that when you live in other cities, it's more complicated. But here, you don't have excuses. And you have to to enjoy the nature. Yes. Do you think that's right? Do you think that's right to put the World Health Organization in such a wonderful place? Shouldn't they put it in like a terrible slum, in the worst area? They'd be more motiv motivated. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably yes. But this is the type of life where we should all promote, no? They don't have big constructions here. They have a very. They are very respectful with the environment. They are very respectful with um, the lake. I mean, in general, mm. with the, the all the facilities. So maybe this is the model. But I've been living in in many horrible places. So in WHO, yes, we have um, a big office in New Delhi. So my colleagues knows what uh, air pollution is. And uh, we have offices in many countries in Africa. So, and I've been living in refugee camps for years. So I know what living in an Islam or a less privileged place is. Yes. <laughs> so you were before you joined the World Health Organization. You were a medical coordinator with Medicine Sans Frontières. Um, you were ref refugee camps in Salvador and Honduras during armed conflicts there. So that was yeah, that was the other extreme. How, how was that? 
oh, it was uh, one of the best experience of my life, not because I enjoy and see people in difficult situations. It was uh, from a human point, point of view. It was really very, very tough. But um, in terms of helping me growing and understanding the world and deciding what I wanted to do and how I could contribute as a doctor to, to the huge challenges we have, it was very, very impressive. And then you see that the good part of everything, you know, in the refugee camps, you can find amazing people in the middle of such a horrible situation. They still have this resilience and this uh, passion to, to go to a better life. And uh, no, uh, it was really an amazing experience. I've been really very lucky to to, to have the opportunity to contribute a little bit to to, to the, those humanitarian situations. So this is one of the best experiences of my life, yes. I was in, at the border between Salvador and Honduras during the, the guerrilla times and you, uh, on a refugee camp that was very close down, surrounded by army from Honduras, so very tough. But uh, yeah, I was very naive as well at that time. So probably that helped me not to see the dangers around, but uh, I survived. <laughs> How old were you at that time? I was 27. I just, uh, it was just after I finished my specialization in Paris. So uh, I was really young and uh, you, you arrive with your uh, kind of genuine and naive and, and thinking that you will save lives. And then uh, this is what I tried to do. But then I realized that it was more about preventing death and while you save lives, but the best way to have an impact was the prevention, exactly. So we put a nutrition program in place, we put a training program for, for, for a um, woman helping us to, to, to take care of pregnant women and then learning hygienic things and then preventing from food poisoning and preventing from air pollution because people were cooking at home and then they were yeah. inhaling this... Uh, horrible combustion and, 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 and so it was it, it was fascinating and then uh, for me this is where i did my uh, my public health uh, training not in the school in, in in paris or the university in paris it was on a refugee camp in, in, in Honduras. <laughs> wow <laughs> for sure so we, you were drawn to that and even then you were looking at not uh, solving the problem and not just fighting the fires well, it took me very little to, to see that because I was uh, receiving an, a child with diarrhea today. You, you treated the diarrhea, you send the, the child back and three days later he comes back with diarrhea or with asthma and you send it back home, you treat the case and then they come back. So it took me two or three times to say, okay, what the hell is going on? Why so many cases of diarrhea? Well, you know, you go there and you see why they have diarrhea and no hygiene, no soap, water, sanitation issues. So you try to then put your efforts there and they ask me the same. I mean, we we, we um, negotiated with the UNHCR who was in charge of the, the, the camp to have a different fuel for, for, for cooking and then having common kitchen and then and then avoiding all of these individual fires at the at the household level and then all of this uh, smoke every morning it was uh, at five o'clock in the morning they were starting to put this uh, fire uh, operating you know to do the tortillas you know the, yeah, the little yeah, yeah, bread yeah. they do in latin with uh, corn and it was 
horrible. You could see the smoke in every single little um, house, well, house, <laughs> piece of of wood, and uh, that was dramatic. So we we put uh, a, a common kitchen, you know, much uh, effective in the combustion. So and instead of having all of this smoke, we reduce it substantially. I think less than 20% of the smoke that we have it. So the number of cases of asthma went poof like right. that. It was so beautiful. No, no, that was uh, very obvious. Instead of having all of this smoke and individual exposure, you have these open kitchens with uh, improved efficiency on the on the combustion of the fuel and then ventilation and the, the women were there, but not all the time with the children and it was an open space. So. Uh, the, the number of cases of asthma when I left was almost zero. Well, how did you, the chronic. How did you do that? I mean, you were 27, you're the fresh out of school. How did you, or this young lady, convince these people to to change this, to get this infrastructure and get, it, get this stuff brought in? I don't know. I think difficult situations give you a, 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 an increase of creativity, you know? And, and uh, another thing I did... Uh, uh, well, we, we were a team, but we, we have something amazing, which was our passion for what we were doing. And, you know, you spend the whole day there, so you, you have ideas for sure. So we did, for instance, uh, we had a lot of people suffering from um, mental kind of, I mean, when you are close on a refugee camp for seven years, for some of them for seven years, they didn't go out. So the mental health issues and the... the we have a lot of cases of psychosomatic. I mean, they were not sick. They were feeling disease, but not sick. So we did, a, we create, a, 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 we put a, a, a plants to, uh, you know, like, um, how do you call it? I mean, it's um, uh, medicines type, I mean, homeopathy. We put some plants to, to grow. And it was a kind of therapeutic approach because the, the, the old people started to cultivate those plants. And then it was medical treatment. It was just a plant sort of for, for um, relax and, uh, and then diuretic and things like that. So it was nothing. But it was uh, psychologically, they were all occupied. They have a, an objective. They feel better. And then with all of those medicines and plants and all of that, we were doing teas and tisans uh, and nothing. Mm. But it, it, it had a, an incredible effect. And then the nutrition uh, training was very effective as well. But, you know, Medicine Frontier is very much um, the platform that stimulates all of these things. So it's, it's good. It's good. Wow. Because yeah. on, on, another, on another show, I had guests who volunteered in Greece to help the refugees there, from, mostly from Syria. And they said it was terribly frustrating to, to do anything with the NGOs, that there was bureaucrac bureaucracy and people stuck mm. in camps, you know, all burning fires, like you say. Mm. Well, I suppose it depends very much where you are and how much space you have uh, and how much um, space you want to take, because mm. uh, I and ask anyone. <laughs> At that time, we were just <laughs> pushing and pushing. So it depends. It depends where you are and, and how much you are conscious of the of the power you can have in terms of uh, uh, you know the, as an as an international institution. You you 
you, you but maybe in Europe is different. Mm. I, I never worked on a refugee camp in Europe. Mm, I suppose it's different. I heard in that, Africa, you, mm. I heard it's a problem when you take when they apply. You apply first world uh, European. You you know your your first world uh, way of working to an emergency situation. Mm. You, you don't. You'd have any different rules for that, no? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I, I. That's why I say I never worked in in, in Europe. But um, I'm sure the conditions are totally different, it, and it's very much uh, focused on the legal aspects of your status, whether you are a migrant or you you have the right to be considered as a refugee, and then you can apply for a visa. On the refugee camps in Central America, it was more a question of. Uh, it was very politicized, of course, because it was uh, the war and uh, a lot of influence from the states at that time. But uh, still, I mean, in terms of assistance, it was uh, basic assistance in terms of food, uh, medical assistance and, 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 and protection. Uh, and then it, it was up to you to be creative and see what else you can uh, contribute to. Mm. But if you just to do your work and you provide medical assistance and that's all mm -hmm. you feel your career the same that you've been in africa things have changed a lot uh, since i was there and mm -hmm. how i the humanitarian work now things have changed a lot it just makes me wonder with this you know people they stop thinking i mean ella kissy deborah went to the the top specialist you know doctors in in london i mean that's the center of medicine and and 27 times and didn't, they didn't, you know, inquire and get to change our style. And you, in, in you know, in El Salvador or Honduras, you know, you after a few times, you you, you work with people and you go to their homes. And I think it's it's a question exactly. But you know, in in, in the refugee camp in Honduras, I was able. I I was forced to do surgery. I did uh, helping women to deliver, even on a very complicated delivery. Things that I will never do in Paris. You think that the, at the hospital where I was trained in Paris, <laughs> I never touch. Imagine me doing surgery without, uh, I mean, that was for the surgeons. I was endocrinologist, so you don't touch the patients. On, uh, and it's hyper-specialized in Europe. I mean, on the rich countries, medicine is hyper-specialized, which is good because we have a hyper-specialization for each of the things. Uh, and then you work very much on a, on a very uh, confined uh, environment. So the hospital, so you provide cure, you provide treatment, but you don't uh, rather have the time nor the authority to, to say, okay, let's get out. Uh, it's very frustrating when you see doctors treating the children obesity and then recommending uh, diet or the recommending treatment but not saying, where do you live? Why this boy is not going down and <clears throat> play football with uh, his uh, friends, you know, and move a little bit around? What is this boy doing? And maybe sitting for 10 hours in front of a computer mm. playing PlayStation. Uh, maybe the parents will say, this is not your business as well. So you, the, the, the rich countries, we have different uh, standards. So I understand those doctors maybe... I mean, it depends in which context. And then at the Faculty of Medicine, they do not train us to do um, prevention. Huh? They train us to, to, to deal with disease, not to deal with um, health. Mm. <laughs> 
is a, a battle that I have very often with my colleagues here in the, in the World Health Organization. I said, remember that we are world, we are called World Health Organization, mm. not World Disease Organization. So we don't take care of the diseases. We take care of health mm. and health means preventing the diseases as well. So that's uh, the World Health is so beautiful, but it's so big. Yeah. So I don't want a world disease organization. I want to be a world health organization. And every doctor at the hospitals, they should not be the world, the, 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 the treatment, the, the, the doctor who treat diseases. It should be the doctor who take care of the health of the people. So your role now very- is your director of Department of Public Health, Environment and Social Determinants at WHO. What, what does that mean then? What do you do on like a day-to-day basis? It's exactly that. It's, it's preventing all of those risk factors. So I work on, on the prevention of uh, making sure that certain chemicals, we look at them, we see whether they have an impact on health, we do an assessment. Once we have a result, we, we do awareness for, for reducing that. We look at which conventions need to be changed to reduce the exposure to lead or to mercury or any of the toxic uh, metals that we still have around. Or we do now, we are very much on the e-waste, you know, the electronic waste that is representing yet another problem. We look at uh, lack of water and sanitation and hygiene. We look at uh, radiation exposure. We look at air pollution, climate change. All of those things are affecting our health. And where do we need to put our fingers to have the maximum possible effect on the prevention of exposure? So it's fascinating. Oh, wow. So you look for all these... Yeah, well, you must have to keep up so up to date with everything because there's these new pollutants coming out all the time, these new issues. Yeah, this issue of electronic waste, you can't imagine uh, all of those, uh, our all computers and all uh, uh, car batteries containing a lot of, uh, of uh, lead ending up in big mountains in Africa or in Asia where you have a woman with a, the, the little child on her back recycling the, the, all of those little pieces that uh, can still be sell and maybe uh, spending 20, 10 hours, 12 hours there exposed to those heavy metals to collect a uh, uh, few grams of uh, something that will be sell and maybe for which they, she can get $5 a day. So the levels of, uh, of uh, lead in blood of the children exposed to that for, for, for months when you look at the books and say what is uh, the normal and the one that will not kill you, you say, no, these books are wrong because uh, the, the, the concentration and the, the presence of the, in the blood of the children of those uh, metals is, is crazy, crazy. Wow. And this is affecting our uh, IQ uh, oh, yeah? very much, neurodevelopment. Uh, and so... Yeah. But we still need to be optimistic. Come on. <laughs> and what about um, what about electric cars? I had that discussion on another show because we're all they're better for the air, better for the lungs. But is there is there going to be problems with all the, the the recycling of all these electric cars? But this this is the thing, you know. When we talk about uh, sustainable development, we have to do it on a very comprehensive way. Remember when the the, the diesel cars were promoted because they were environmentally friendly in terms of CO2. 
but nobody thought that, okay, maybe, but they are bad for our lungs. So um, that's why I want to put the health in the middle of this debate. If you, if you, if you do it, all the assessment of the impact of any intervention you have on a comprehensive way, but you put health in the center, then uh, we will have less mistakes uh, like uh, the one on, on, on the diesel cars mm-hmm. or now the it on the on the on the electronic electric uh, cars. Mm. So, what's your opinion of electric cars? Are they will it, they're probably coming inevitably, but is it for the better or for the worse? I hope it will be for the better. It has to be, but we need to look at this issue of the batteries and the recycling and the uh, from where this uh, how to yeah, particularly the recycling of the batteries. But I'm convinced that the, the private sector, if you give them a good uh, business case. You know they will come up with a solution, but we need to to put pressure pressure on them to say, okay, this is irreversible now. Diesel cars and fossil fuel cars they they need to get out of the business. So give us a better solution, but a solution that is broad and it goes until the end of the problem, not just the little piece that we need at the moment. So your work, do you influence governments, or do you inf- do you can you do legislation for affecting companies? How do you how do you put pressure? Whoever, whoever accept our influence, and even if they don't accept it, we try it. <laughs> so yes, no governments, of course, uh, private sector, big companies, individuals, uh, uh, activists. Um, we we touch on all the, the 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 places where we can have an influence. People like you. <laughs> I mean, no, everything is useful. You know, journalists, the big. Uh, uh, politicians that might have an influence on the public so wherever we can have a, a an impact mm. quite a few of my guests said maybe you could check this for me that that the recycling initiatives were actually created by the plastic companies because they wanted to push the burden of responsibility onto the end consumer is that true it's, it's partly true yes it's partly true and it's, it, it proves how the private sector always have a very good solution and a good strategy, you know? So if we put them in our side at the beginning, when you have a problem, say, okay, guys, we are not just attacking you and making you responsible. No, you, you need to think with us how we will solve this problem. And uh, I mean, the Coca-Cola guys, they always say, oh, we don't sh- sell sugar, we, we sell a drink. So uh, yeah, but your drink is full of sugar. So yeah, but we can play differently. We can reduce sugar and we, okay, let's discuss that. And then tell me, how do you want to do it? And uh, and then the plastic issue is another one. And then, uh, so unless our citizens are perfectly aware, they know what are the issues and they keep putting pressure on 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 the governments, but as well on the private sector, saying no, I am not consuming Coca Cola. If you don't give me a better, um, you know, better solution for 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 the bottle, or I will not consume Coca Cola because I understand that it's uh, full of of sugar and this is very bad. Uh, that's why a lot of education of uh, our citizens is so important. So what can we do as individuals? Should we just change our behavior or should we should we join any organization? Should we write to politicians? What What's the most effective way we can... Act? All of them, all of them. I mean, of course, we need to change uh, our behaviors because uh, the, the, the pollution we are on it is because we are all of us adding a little piece of pollution. 
But there are certain things that you cannot, as an individual, change. Like uh, if you live in London, I mean, you have to breathe the air that is there. You cannot mm-hmm. choose and say, no, today I'm breathing the air of uh, the mountain in Kathmandu. No, you have to breathe whatever is available. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to vote and we need to make sure that our politicians respond to our demands. And uh, we need to be activists and, and create groups and 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 and. and and put an emphasis on, on raising awareness and, and engaging with others. Uh, my my mission now is make sure that any single pediatrician in the world, any single uh, doctor specialized on lungs or, or cancer or, or or any other specialized doctor, join me and on, on, on join this cause. No, no, no! I'm fighting for clean air. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to, to, to fighting for clean air. I mean, it should be a <laughs> basic thing, you know. Water, food, and, and air. What else? I mean, if we cannot have clean air, but we need to fight for that. So I want all the the, the health professionals protesting and, and and really raising their voices and saying that, come on, this is ridiculous. We need to change all of us. But we need to change laws, we need to change the way we live, and we need big changes in terms of the use of the sources of energy that we have now, which are really killing us. Do you know if you spoke to the doctors of Elikisi Deborah? Did you ever, those pediatricians? Yeah, we have big networks of uh, cardiologists, pediatricians, uh, health professionals all around the world. But there is never enough. We need uh, them to raise their voice more and more and more. Um, there is one doctor who was intervening in, uh, in the Ella case, and uh, he was amazing. He was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Don't remember his name, but he's the one who intervened uh, at the court. And wow, he was mm-hmm. really amazing. That's mm-hmm. a landmark case, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So good. Wow, this has been a great chat. I mean, um, I think we covered so much. Is there is there anything you think that that we didn't cover that you'd like to? No, I'm happy like that. So, what what are you doing now? What tell me? What's your <laughs> what uh, what next? Well, I have to lie down with a with a fan over me, with getting fresh and cool air, and try and get inspired to write a song, to uh, to send out your message to the to the world. Fantastic. You see, you are my activist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's fantastic. I mean, I really appreciate it because your inbox must be... Music can, mo- can move mountains. Eh? The, the music can move mountains. So if you do a funny song, we'll see, you know, we can move mountains. So I hope it will be the case. I trust you. <laughs> oh, well, you've done your bit. You've provided the inspiration. So the rest is up to me. Wonderful. Okay. So, Jack... We keep in touch, okay? All right, definitely. Let me know. Wonderful. Thanks so much for the chat and for everything you're doing. It's uh, we're so lucky to have people like you. Same, same front. here. Thanks for what you are doing. Thank you very much. Bye. Ciao. Bye, Maria. Ciao. Bye. Numbers written there Of 
Little man, he died each year Cause of dirty air Numbers, they don't speak to you Drama, they lack Unlike the sound of hearing someone Die from an asthma attack song can make a difference but so can you think before you drive think which car you buy what kind of heating you use in your home we can all make a difference and thanks to my musicians Maurizio Sanicola, Massimino Vozza and my researcher Dori Verbo please check the song on iTunes, Spotify share it, share this message so that more people can hear it and well rate and review on your podcast app do everything you can to help promote the show and help our guests to spread their messages thanks until next time have a great day